Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. An amazing new show has made its debut on Netflix. I can't wait to tell you why I love Jupiter's Legacy. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. We'll talk about our favorite disaster movies as a big one celebrates a milestone. And I'll go back to the Butlerverse to review Gerard Butler's Rock and Roll On. <laughs> Butlerverse. The Butlerverse. One of the strangest fascinations one's ever had. I love it. I love it. And Disney Plus has its latest hit on its hands from the Star Wars galaxy. They've revealed the Bad Batch. Don't you remember the island? And what we had to do to earn these powers? 90 years. 90 years, and what do we have to show for it? We've made a difference, show. So I previewed this last week after I had already started watching Jupiter's Legacy. As you might know, we are thankful to have preview access to some of the stuff we watch, whether it's on Amazon Prime or on Disney+, Plus, as well as Netflix. And in the case of Netflix, some of the stuff that gets loaded into our preview content is there like two months before a show makes its official debut. So it's kind of a buyer beware situation for us because if we watch something early, we just have to sit on it until the embargo is lifted and the embargo lifted for Jupiter's Legacy at 12.01 a.m. Pacific time Friday, which is why the podcast for the Couch Potatoes wasn't available until Friday morning. So now that I can talk about it, let me tell you about Jupiter's Legacy. We touched on it last week, as mentioned. We mentioned that you could call this Netflix's answer to Prime's The Boys. It's their new superhero show for a more mature audience, complete with all kinds of family drama. What was Dad like when he was younger? Nothing ever rattled a bastard. The man I knew was never at home when I was a kid. Too busy saving the world. Everything you do is a reflection on this family. You have to be the ideal. No one can live up to the ideal. Not even Dad. Described as follows, no legacy lives forever. The first generation of superheroes have kept the world safe for nearly a century. Now their children must continue their legendary ideals. From the mind of Mark Miller, who's done things like the kick-ass comics and movies, the Kingsman series, he likes kind of subverting the superhero genre or or subverting genres in general, likes to flip them on their head and take them to unexpected places Uh, In fact, I've even seen one person say this show, Jupiter's Legacy, is like, this is us, but with capes, LOL. But I suppose that's an apt description, because I love This Is Us, although I'm way behind, uh, and I love Jupiter's Legacy. It used to be that you protect your country. They call you a hero. changing. So I guess we're going to have to change with it. Who 
together and can do this anymore. You do the right thing. Somebody dies. You do the wrong thing. Somebody dies. So lots of superhero stories are pretty straightforward, right? I mean, they but they've always got a theme to their story, whether it's dealing with loss or pain or anger or mental wellness or fear, etc., etc., etc. It's never just bad guy over there, good guy smash. But this show is particularly layered and complex, weaving multiple generations and characters with entirely different motivations. My basic summary, over eight episodes, we come to learn how the world's First, superheroes got their powers, how that changed their lives, in some cases for the better, in some cases for the worse. And our main heroes don't have the best family life. It's got action, adventure, drama, and mystery because the origin of their powers is revealed slowly and it really builds up into a tremendous mystery. It uses the storytelling method used by so many shows now since Lost did it so well. Flashbacks. So we're watching... Essentially, two storylines, what's happening now and what happened in the past as they made their way towards becoming superheroes. The basic theme, the overarching theme, is the American ideal and whether it should evolve or should it stay the same. Our heroes hold to an ideal that many now think is out of date. You know, times change, change with the times. As mentioned, they've been around as superheroes for a hundred years but they want to hold the line to try to set an example, kind of like old school Superman. You know, he, remember his mantra used to be truth, justice, the American way, and so on. That maybe made sense decades ago, but now yeah, it seems a bit more gray. And it's thanks to that ideal that these heroes try to hold to that there is the aforementioned family strife. Josh Duhamel leads the cast. He plays the main hero, but his family life, as mentioned, not great. One of his kids is tired of not living up to his dad's expectations, while the other has just completely rebelled against those expectations, and she is on the brink of personal disaster. I just thought this show was gripping. And it was just a few weeks ago that Netflix released that Shadow and Bone show, which is more of a fantasy-type show, and I loved that. And now they've got another slam dunk winner, as far as I'm concerned, with Jupiter's Legacy. It was fun. It was compelling. The mystery sucks you in. It's got great acting, great writing, tremendous visuals, great visual effects. Some of the powers on display are creative, or they're just creative variations of powers that you might be familiar with. Some of the costumes, I would suggest, looked kind of dumb, but... Uh, I think I should chalk that up not just to them probably having a lower budget for that kind of stuff, but I also chalk it up to the fact that none of these heroes are iconic, right? Like most people know what Spider-Man or Batman or Superman, Wonder Woman, know what they look like. So if the costume isn't the best, we might be able to turn a blind eye to that. We don't know any of these characters unless you've read the comics. So I thought a couple of the costumes looked silly, but maybe they're bang on to the comics. I don't know. I haven't read them. Uh, and I, I kind of wish I had read them. The first volume of episodes, they're calling it a volume, not a season, like a volume of comics. Great ending that left me aghast. So I highly recommend this. Even if you don't like superhero stuff, I think you might actually be able, be able to get into it, given the dramatic components of the show. Just give it a try. It's only eight episodes for this first volume. So I think I'm going to give this four and a half couch cushions out of five. Is this on your radar at all, Jeff? 
It wasn't, but it is now. Uh, that's very convincing argument you've just made there. I think I actually will check this one out. Cool. Jupiter's Legacy. It sounds good. It's so good. It's so good. I, I can't... Uh, Shadow and Bone, super good. I still recommend that. And Jupiter's Legacy. Uh, watch them both. Star Wars, meanwhile. New this week, Disney Plus made a big debut on Tuesday, May the 4th. As in, May the 4th be with you for Star Wars Day. Their new animated series, The Bad Batch. A test is in order. Five enhanced clones. More capable than an army. Yet they exhibit a concerning level of disobedience in disregard for orders. What else you got? Give me more! It's about a group of elite clone troopers with genetic mutations who were first introduced in the Clone Wars series in The Bad Batch, which is set somewhere between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. They take on mercenary missions in the aftermath of the Clone Wars. Our squad's nothing but trouble. But we get the job done. You'll climb Force 99. You know who we are. Hunter. Let's go. Echo. Hyperdrive's online. Tech. Prepping to jump. Wrecker. Let's blow something up. Yeah! And Crosshair. Your move. <laughs> We're all you need. They're joined by Omega, a young female clone who wants to be part of the fun and also make the show more kid-friendly. I want Clone Force 99 found and wiped out. The galaxy's a dangerous place to be. We need to get out of here. What do you say, kid? You want to come with us? How can I help? Now, I have not watched the Clone Wars series. I've always wanted to, but... There's a lot. Like I, I can't remember how many seasons, six or seven of them. I don't know. And they've, they're just dozens of episodes. So if I ever start that, that's going to be a long project. But by all accounts, it's a really good series. Uh, so I was compelled to watch this because it's brand new. The first episode of The Bad Batch was good. Clearly, it's aimed at a younger audience. But I think that this is still something all Star Wars fans can enjoy. I like the premise of these ragtag clones all being unique in their own way. And I like that they can think for themselves, unlike the other clones who are just clones. They're kind of mindless drones. First episode debuted Tuesday for a special preview. And then the rest of the episodes will debut on Fridays. So uh, I, I like that. Not as didn't blow me away like the Mandalorian did, but this was fun. You're going to take a look at this. Me? No, because I I've, ugh, I can't get into the Star Wars cartoons for whatever reason. I wish I could. Maybe someday I will, but uh, I don't think so. Not right now, anyways. Yeah, we got enough stuff to watch anyway. So if it's not yeah. if it's not making you like compelling you to watch it, then just don't bother. But if you like cartoons, you like Star Wars, check it out. In a moment, we are going to move from brand new stuff and take a look back at some of our favorite stuff from the days of yore, because a couple of Pretty big anniversaries in film, Jeff wants to tell you about. That's coming up next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes.
Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And we're going to talk disaster movies now. There are a handful of movies in the last three or 30 years that really changed the game as far as the advent of CGI goes and how it changed disaster movies and blockbusters in general. Jurassic Park, of course, really launched CGI in a noticeable way. Titanic leveled it up a notch. The Lord of the Rings leveled it up another notch. And it's continuously been refined ever since. But a little movie from 1996 called Twister played a role, too, I think, and this week it celebrates its 25th anniversary. The New York Times calls Twister. Come on! Exuberant as a roller coaster ride. Hurry! Staged with adrenaline-pumping fury and spectacular special effects. A gale force movie. You got to get out of there! It's gonna drop right on us! With the energy to blow audiences right out of the theater. Hang on! I distinctly remember walking out of Twister and thinking, well, they can do whatever they want now in movies. The CGI doesn't hold up in every shot, but I mean, back in 1996, it was pretty convincing. It really felt like tornadoes were tearing through all that stuff. I saw it twice in theaters because it was so jaw-dropping. And of course, it introduced us all to Philip Seymour Hoffman in an early role, so that's a win as well. Twister made nearly half a billion dollars worldwide. It was the number two movie of 1996 after Independence Day and just ahead of the first Mission Impossible. After Twister, there was this flood of disaster movies. Large-scale destruction was now able to be shown realistically, and Twister proved there was an appetite for it. So we got fires and floods and meteors and volcanoes and ice storms and tidal waves and earthquakes and you name it. And it all just got bigger and sillier as the years went along until we got to things like Sharknado. Now we don't see that stuff as much and when we do it really doesn't have the same impact Greenland was very good earlier this year, but that was really more about the characters and their journey than it was about the special effects. And of course, another Gerard Butler movie of recent years, Geostorm, harkened more to the Twister era. And while that movie is beyond silly, it's also quite a lot of fun. We're going to talk some more Butler in a minute, by the way. Uh, but Twister was one of those movies that was just a game changer for blockbusters. And we're going to talk about a few of our favorite disaster movies. Now, Brett, what did you think about Twister when you first saw it? Twister is my all-time favorite disaster movie i remember we uh, we talked about this last year it was june just of last year where i guess i finally re-watched twister because the uh the screen junkies on youtube did a did an honest trailer for it which is a, a pair it's a parody video where they lovingly poke fun at uh you know a movie or a tv show and i remember the and the excitement when i went to go see that movie and i will admit it ties to the fact that I was 18 years old and it was just cool to everything. Like it was my first, or I guess I was, it was 96. Yeah. So I was just still just enjoying being an adult and everything was fun and exciting. And, uh, but that movie in particular remains as far as I'm concerned, the gold standard for sound. Like if, if I had a full blown surround system in my apartment, which I probably shouldn't have because I'm in an apartment. But if I did, that would be the movie I would put on. And if I wanted to show it off and show off the sound, I just, I love this movie as dumb as it is. Great characters. Bill Paxton is tremendous in that. Helen Hunt. And as you pointed out, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Twister. I dig it. Right on. Um, I like it too. And we're going to talk about a few of our other favorites. And I'm going to start with a movie called Daylight, also from 96, starring Sylvester Stallone. Manhattan is an island. If you want to get off the island, you can go over the water or go under it. 
Tonight, however, commuters are advised to avoid the tunnel. Daylight's about a group of people trapped in that collapsed tunnel in New York. The river above them seeping in and threatening to drown them. Both ends of the tunnel blocked by debris from the explosion. And the whole mess is dangerously shifting, which is probably the most terrifying aspect of it all. That where the people are, things are unstable and could come crashing down on them at any moment. It's by no means one of the bigger deals on Stallone's resume. But I like that it lets him be an action hero without having to, you know, gun down dozens of people to do it. Uh, It's a little bit much in that he's a former EMS chief who's now a... A current taxi driver, so he just happens to have all the skills necessary to handle the situation. Also kind of unique as far as disaster movies go, because a lot of movies are not really original, as we'll get into with you know a bunch of different meteor movies or volcano movies. This one's kind of stands on its own. It's not streaming anywhere, but if you see it on TV, I highly recommend checking it out. And in a moment, we'll have more of our favorite disaster movies. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. We're talking about our favorite disaster movies. We were talking about Twister earlier and the Sylvester Stallone movie Daylight. Next one on my list is The Perfect Storm. We're going back out. Between job and family. You're going away again? Between land and ocean. I got a woman I can't stand to be away from. Between fate and courage. These storms have collided. Lies the biggest storm in recorded history. If they can't get to us, we'll get to them. The perfect storm. Rated PG-13. I just love all those old TV commercials from back in the day. Um, The Perfect Storm, of course, from the year 2000. And the ocean fascinates me and kind of terrifies me. The vastness of it uh, is mind-boggling. And when you're out in it alone, you're really alone. It's like space in that way. Being lost at sea has been one of my greatest fears. But I'm almost never at sea period, so it's okay. These poor guys in the movie, though, not okay. George Clooney, the fishing boat captain with a crew consisting of Mark Wahlberg, John C. Riley, and a few others. They head out to fish for a couple of weeks. The fishing has not been great lately, so they head out deeper, and through bad luck and some bad decisions, they get stuck in the perfect storm. And you know from the poster, which features their little boat about to be capsized by a monstrous wave, that it is not going to end well, so the whole movie has that cloud of dread hanging over it. I love the idea of working and living on a boat like that, but movies like this always quickly change my mind. When everything's calm, you know, it'd kind of be nice to be at sea, but sooner or later, you're bound to get caught in some bad weather. By the way, my dad always makes a point of noting that the book is better than the movie, so if you're looking for something to read, maybe consider The Perfect Storm. And then my favorite disaster movie, Brett, um, it'll be the same for, as it is for many other people. It's a little movie called Titanic. Water, 14 feet above the keel in 10 minutes, in the 4P, in all three holds, and in boiler room six. That's right, sir. When can we get underway, damn it? That's five compartments. She can stay afloat with the first four compartments breached, but not five. As she goes down by the head, the water will spill over the tops of the bulkheads from one to the next, back and back. There's no stopping it. From this moment, no matter what we do, Titanic will founder. But this ship can't sink. She's made of iron, sir. I assure you, she can. 
Again, boats in the ocean and lost at sea. Bigger boat this time, but it doesn't really much matter if it sinks. The second half of Titanic, the actual disaster portion of it all, from the moment the ship hits the iceberg, is simply a masterpiece. I know teenage girls loved the Leo of it all in the first half, but most people forgave the corniness of a lot of that first half because the second half is just so compelling. And as Roger Ebert points out in his review, the genius of the movie is at the beginning and present day when they show via their computer models how the boat sank the things that happened in order from hitting the iceberg, slowly nosing into the water, cracking in half, the back end upending itself, and then finally going down. Knowing all that before we even saw the boat hit the berg, we're primed for the back half of the movie. We know what's going, what's happening to the boat. The first half of the movie did a good job laying out the geography of the ship. And so as Leo and Kate are racing around trying to save themselves, we don't have to waste brain power trying to suss out what's actually happening. We just already know it. And the special effects were just jaw-dropping. I mentioned CGI earlier. The boat CGI holds up very well. The fake people walking on deck in the wide shots, not so much. But the practical effects too. I mean, the giant three-quarter scale ship they built as a set is just amazing. It's one of the great disastrous production stories of all time as well. Nobody was happy making that movie. James Cameron was a tyrant, but like so many of those disastrous productions, the final product made it all worth it. So Titanic is my favorite disaster movie, Brett. All right. Now, some of my favorites. Well, you actually mentioned it already when talking about Twister because it came out the same year. Independence Day. Well, so I was about this. SETI in New Mexico identified a signal. We estimate that it has a diameter of over 550 kilometers and a mass roughly one-fourth the size of our moon. What the hell is it? A meteor? No, sir. No, definitely not. How do you know? Well, sir, it's slowing down. It's what? Independence Day from director Roland Emmerich. This is a movie that also had some pretty landmark visual effects where Twister gave us the tornadoes and I was with you Jeff I kind of thought they is there what cannot what can't they do now in movies yeah. so with Twister we had all of those storms and Independence Day they just blew everything up they blew up the White House and it looked real it was so cool and it was just a fun movie and, and I know I guess Technically, it's not a disaster movie. It's an alien invasion science fiction, but there is a disaster. There's enough. There's enough destruction that it is disastrous. So I'm calling it a disaster movie for the purposes of this conversation. And uh, Will Smith, young Will Smith, just a super fun film. So Independence Day. That's the kind of movie where if I see it on TV, I rarely flip channels. But if I happen to flip channels and land on Independence Day, that's the rest of my day because I love it. And then this next one came out in 1998 from another director who likes making things go boom. We spend $250 billion a year on defense. And here we are. The fate of the planet is in the hands of a bunch I wouldn't trust with a potato gun. Armageddon. Bruce Willis and his pals, his oil rig pals, go uh, into space to blow up an asteroid and this is a uh, uh, such a cheesy movie and it has so many stupid things like why do they have a machine gun in space what were they expecting to find on the asteroid were they expecting to find little spacemen like just so dumb but who cares it's fun and uh again some great disaster stuff with buildings collapsing and with the, the mini asteroids coming in and making things blow up on Earth. So, yeah, this was a cool, cool movie in 2004. Another Roland Emmerich movie. 
the day after tomorrow. I think we're on the verge of a major climate shift. Now, what exactly are you proposing, Professor? Evacuate. From the director of Independence Day comes the biggest event. It's happening all around the world. In 10,000 years. Come on! The day after tomorrow. The voice of Peter Cullen, a.k.a. Optimus Prime, heard for the second time as we talk about these disaster movies. We heard him in one of the other spots, I think, in the Perfect Storm uh, commercial that you played, Jeff. But yeah, this book, (laughs) this movie's based on a book from 1999 called The Coming Global Superstorm by uh, the late radio host Art Bell and Whitley Stryber. And it stars Dennis Quaid as uh, the world is essentially entering another ice age and you pointed out how these disaster movies just got bigger and bigger and sillier and sillier. And once again, this is one of the dumbest movies, quite frankly, ever made, uh, featuring a young Jake Gyllenhaal and the uh, uh, the woman who led the cast of Shameless. When I'm, her name is escaping me, and I'm sorry about that. But uh, I'll you keep talking. Okay, but. Um, Great visual effects, tremendous visual effects, compelling visual effects, even though some of them were dumb, like where they were outrunning the cold as they're running down a hall and you could see the walls freezing as they're, it's like the cold is chasing them into this safe zone. It was like that scene in The Mummy Returns when Brendan Fraser is outrunning the sun, like he outran the sun. That was... (laughs) (laughs) That is so stupid, but it made for a fun scene. So that's the kind of filmmaker Roland Emmerich is, right? He knows how to make big, dumb, entertaining movies as long as you turn your brain off. Emmy Rossum. Thank you. Yes, so they, they, that was one of their, the first times you really saw them, and to see them both together was kind of cool, and it's kind of cool to go back and see them again, but... This next, this actually leads into my next one. You want to talk about getting big and silly? I don't know if they get much bigger and much sillier than 2012. The Mayans knew about it. The Bible. It's the end of the world, my friends. Yeah, you look scared because fireballs are raining down from the sky from a volcano that just exploded. So whereas the day after tomorrow, if memory serves, I think it was actually just the northern hemisphere that was affected and that fell into the Ice Age. The whole planet is affected by this. It's based on, it's from 2009, and it's based on the premise that the world was going to end because of the Mayans calendar. And something happens that just sends the entire world into chaos. There are tidal waves that are bigger than mountains. The White House, once again, Roland Emmerich clearly likes blowing up the White House. In this case, he didn't blow it up. He had it get wiped away by an aircraft carrier named the USS John F. Kennedy that was being pushed into it and through it by one of the aforementioned gigantic tidal waves. But yeah, California falls into the sea. Like the 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 destruction on display in this film 
might still be unparalleled. I know we've seen lots of disaster porn in superhero movies and science fiction yeah. movies like The Avengers or Man of Steel or Pacific Rim. But in this movie, it just, the whole world basically goes bye-bye. So, but it's too long and it has some really dumb subplots as all of his movies do. do. <laughs> but uh, I, it's the, watching the destruction, it was breathtaking on the big screen. I'm surprised you didn't mention Geostorm as one of your disaster movies, Jeff, because we know you love the Butlerverse. And hey, we're going back to the Butlerverse up next for something different. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and it's time to go back to the Butlerverse as part of my continuing look at the films of Mr. Gerard <laughs> Butler. Today, it's time to check 2008's Rock and Roll Up. Well, what do you want? You. Dance? You're a dancer. Am I a dancer? I've got some work. Seven million euros, but it won't be protected. Is this a robbery? Yes, it is a robbery. <laughs> Where's reverse? You have to lift up the knob under the gear stick. Oh, yeah. You didn't realize that they had guns? Was war criminals attached to the trigger? Rock and Roll is written and directed by Britain's Guy Ritchie, who made quite an entrance into the world of cinema with movies like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch. He then, of course, married Madonna, made a bad movie with her called Swept Away and had another bomb called Revolver. So in 2008, he made Rock and Roll in an attempt to get back to what he loved uh, or what we loved about his movies in the first place. It's set in the underbelly of London's crime world. Everyone in the movie is a criminal of some sort, and it's got an impressive cast. A lot of folks who were right on the verge of becoming A-listers, including Idris Elba, Tom Hardy, Tandy Newton, Tom Wilkinson, Mark Strong, Jeremy Piven, and Ludacris, in addition, of course, to Gerard Butler. It's one of the movies that is intricately plotted and everything, and everyone's connected. There's some circular logical plotting that really made my head spin. There are double crosses, shifting alliances, all that good stuff, mixed with the kinetic energy of Guy Ritchie's stylized filmmaking. In fact, I think it's a little too much at times. There are not a lot of scenes that really breathe enough. It's constantly moving forward like a shark that eats plot points, and it's kind of exhausting that way, which is too bad because the times it does slow down are pretty enjoyable, most notably a scene where Butler, who plays a thug named one two is trying to run away from another thug who won't just won't give up. He's like the the T one thousand in Terminator two. My other gripe, as it pertains to my Butlerverse journey, is that he's not in it enough. He does get top billing. The poster makes it look like he's the star, but it's very much an ensemble piece, and he's merely a cog in it. I will say that Butler gives probably the most natural, relaxed performance of anyone in this movie. Everyone else feels like a capital C character in a Guy Ritchie movie, and Butler feels like Butler for the most part. Of course, scenery chewing is one of the hallmarks of a Guy Ritchie movie, so Butler fits right in. Complaints aside, though, the movie was actually better than I was expecting, and as far as Gerard Butler movies go, it is definitely one of his better ones, but if you're looking for Butler specifically, it is a little wanting. I was disappointed because I thought he'd be in it more. It does prove once again, though, that given some decent material, he is a good actor. And of course, we saw that recently with Greenland, which we both highly recommend and is available on Amazon Prime Video if you've not seen it yet. Rock and Rolla, uh, not bad either. I'll give it three coach cushions out of five, Brett, and you can find it on Netflix right now. Kind of want to revisit that movie now. I remember seeing that in the theater and thinking, I didn't really care for that, but it's been a while. It's been a while since I've checked that out. So, Yeah, it's cool. 
And what? Do we, oh, we got one more thing to talk about. Conan O'Brien is about to move into a new phase of his career, this time because he wants to, not because he has to. He's ending his current show on TBS next month, not retiring, but it will be the end of him hosting a late-night talk show. Conan reflected on that this week after making the announcement. When you've been in late-night television as long as I have, day in and day out, you start to wonder, what's my legacy? Well, I got my answer. Last week, I was watching Jeopardy!, and, uh, well, this happened. Recent books for 800. A head writer of Saturday Night Live, he titled his memoir, A Very Punchable Face. Kelly. Who's Conan O'Brien? That's incorrect. Looking for Colin Jost. <laughs> you like that, Andy? You like that? You having a good laugh? Uh, having a little laugh? What the hell is that? That's what's great about no matter how long you've been in late night, no matter what you think you've accomplished, a little moment like that brings you not just right back down to earth, but it digs a hole and shoves you in it. Conan's been doing his talk show on TBS for 11 years now after famously being fired from The Tonight Show after hosting it for less than a year. That still burns me up a bit because Conan is 10 times funnier than dumb old Jay Leno was, but whatever, that's ancient history at this point. Before that, Conan had been the late-night host after The Tonight Show since 1993. Now, of course, he's the longest-running talk show host in the game, and he's moving on. His current show ending June 24th. It's already has been reduced from one hour to 30 minutes in 2019. They got rid of the band and they only have one guest each episode after that show ends conan will develop a new show for hbo max no word on how we'll see it in canada as tbs show currently airs on ctv but this new show won't be a talk show format and the details are scarce but that much we know he'll also keep producing his conan without borders series which is basically just him traveling to other countries and meeting the locals and having fun a lot of those episodes are available on netflix and they are hilarious and of course he's got his podcast conan o'brien needs a friend which is is a long-form interview format show bookended by uh, fun conversations with his staff. One of my favorite podcasts, actually. So uh, we got something new to look forward to from Conan O'Brien in the near future. And that's all the time we've got. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast for the Couch Potatoes in case you're hearing this on the radio and you want access to the program sooner. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. <laughs>